friends, and welcome. I'm glad you're here. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to thank those of you who messaged me after the Matthew Ori podcast. That episode has caught fire. It's, it's beginning to rival any other in terms of downloads, and I'm really appreciative. It's generated quite a buzz from listeners because Matt is inspiring a lot of a lot of people. He's been through a lot, and he was willing to share what he's been through and how it's inspired him, and it's having an impact on other people. So that's really cool to see. And it's been really cool for me because I get to hear from people that I haven't heard from in years from the small town that he and I are from. Uh, guys like Brian Roundtree and Jay Rudder have sent me feedback saying how much they've enjoyed the past three episodes. And um, yeah, that's just really cool. Brian's a solid family man who owns and operates a dentistry down there. And Jay Rudder is a home builder. Probably about five or six years ago, I got to see a South Louisiana style home that he builds in the, I guess it's the French Acadian tradition down near Bayou Lafouche. And it was just a beautiful build that's probably unique to that part of the country, I would think. So really high ceilings and no hallways, no wasted space. Had a lot of brick on the inside, which I really like. So keep the feedback coming. I really appreciate it. You can email me at contact.manoverseas at gmail.com or tweet at me. I'm at man underscore overseas. But it's really good to hear from listeners. So keep it coming. My guest on the podcast today is Nick Hutchison. He is a Boston, Massachusetts native who works full-time as a sales professional. He also has a side hustle called Book Thinkers, which is a fast-growing Instagram community for book lovers. I believe he's going to have a mobile app coming out soon, so I'll get a chance to ask him about that. And he's also fanatical about self-development, so he's my kind of guy. We'll have a lot to talk about. So with that, let me welcome Nick Hutchison. Nick, welcome to the podcast, man. How are you? Hey, Brad, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here and I'm excited for our conversation today. Cool, man. Me too. You're in Boston, correct? Yes, I am. I'm about 20 miles south of the city. Okay. What's that called? Northeastern Massachusetts. It's a small town of about 30,000 people, but it gives me easy access to the city, which is nice. That's cool. Yeah, I went to high school in a suburb of Houston. The address was Houston, but I kind of got the benefit of a small town community, but you still get the amenities of a big city like the Astros and the Rockets and the theater and all of that stuff. Sure. Yeah. I find that valuable as well. Cool. Have you lived there your entire life? I grew up in this area and then I moved away to school for about four years in New Hampshire. I went to the University of New Hampshire and then I lived in New Hampshire for a year after school. So that puts me at a total of five years in New Hampshire. And then I actually lived in Jacksonville, Florida for a little over a year after that. And now, now I'm back in the Boston area. Cool. So you've lost your accent, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I think that I've intentionally tried to get rid of the Boston accent <laughs> because I think, you know, as somebody who travels all over the U.S. specifically mm-hmm. for sales and business meetings, when you sit down in a conference room and you layer down a thick Boston accent, <laughs> sometimes people take that the wrong way or, or it's, <laughs> it's uneducated. So I definitely tried to get rid of that. I think if I lived there in the Boston area, I would have season tickets to the Red Sox. Have you been to Fenway Park? Yeah, I've been to a couple games this year already. I love going to Fenway Park. It's one of the best experiences that anybody visiting Boston could experience. Oh, yeah. So much history and culture, and it's such a friendly environment. Have, has there been any talk of tearing that down? Because they tore down Yankee Stadium. I don't see why uh, Fenway Park would be immune to being torn down at some point. I don't think that that'll happen. I think Boston loves the stadium so much and there's 
there's a lot of architecture built up around it now mm-hmm. that complements the stadium with bars and restaurants and things like that. So they've done a lot of renovations over the last couple of, well, over, over its history. It's mm-hmm. like a hundred years old now, but they've added seats everywhere that they possibly can to contribute you know, to continue to try to monetize it effectively and things like that. But I don't think it's coming down anytime soon. That's good. Yeah, I guess they're doing the same with Wrigley, a lot of renovations. I mentioned in the introduction that you are the founder of Book Thinkers, which has about 30,000 followers on Instagram. Is that, is that right? 30,000 followers? Yeah, yeah. I'm so grateful for that following. It has about 30,000 followers right now, and it's continuing to grow at over 1,000 organic followers per week. So I'm excited to see where BookThinkers goes. Wow. What was the impetus for starting BookThinkers? Sure. So I started the I started BookThinkers originally a website and it was a place where I could put the books I was reading, put a couple notes and then when friends or family members would ask me about the books that I was reading, I could just shoot them that URL rather than having to type out answers every single time and that platform continued to grow which I'm happy to talk about in a couple minutes, but the Instagram was just a dedicated place for me to share my thoughts on nonfiction, personal development books that I was reading. And, you know, now it's grown into much more than that, but that's kind of how it started. And did you start reading because you thought that it would help you in your career? Sure. So funny enough, I, when I was growing up sort of through middle school and high school and early college, I was person who took a stance against reading. I didn't think it was cool. I didn't think it was popular. I played sports and, you know, I just didn't want to be that guy. So, you know, I have a couple of funny stories. Like I took AP classes in high school and I always tell this story that I had a zero homework average in AP calculus. Later in college, I took an internship with the company that I still work for now. And one of my early sales mentors said, Hey, if you're not finding a lot of value in school, if you're skipping class, if it's just not holding your attention, you should try reading books. There are people who have done what you want to do professionally and they've done it really well and they've all written books about how they did it. So why don't you check out some of these books? And he recommended a couple books for me. And the first book that I had read, which I think many of us probably have the same story, was Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And although it wasn't sales related, which was the role that I was in, at least not directly, it helped shift my mindset towards the importance of financial literacy and personal development. And I think that I, I learned so much more in that couple hours reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad than I did compared to my entire collegiate career. I said, wow, I need to triple, quadruple down on this activity. And I just started reading and haven't looked back yet. Wow. So did it get you started in investing in income producing assets? Yeah, it definitely, well, it shifted my mindset towards that. You know, at the time that I was reading, I didn't have a lot of capital to invest in different places. So, you know, working full time over the past couple of years, I've definitely invested a lot of money into my 401k. My company has a match on that. So that's been my number one. But then I've also shifted more recently into real estate, multifamily rentals. So, yeah, it's definitely helped define what an asset is for me. You know, I know Robert talks a lot about how the traditional definition of an asset isn't necessarily going to make you money. And uh, so, yeah. What about you? What's your experience with that? Well, I read the book when I was probably 22 or 23 years old. And like you said, it shifted my mindset to where 
in lieu of shiny things that depreciate in value, I started buying income producing real estate. And that's what ultimately led to my financial freedom. And I, th I think more than anything, when you encounter people that don't read, like I have, I have this one friend in particular who kind of prides himself on being a smart dude, but also says that he doesn't read. I think about all of the things that I've learned through the years that have gotten me to where I am now, that if I was not a reader, I, I wouldn't, I'd be in such a totally different place. So what is that quote where they say you're the same person five years from now as you are today, except for the books you read and the people you meet? I have totally I bought into that. And I, every five years, I'm just a new person almost because of the collective knowledge that I've gotten from books. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just had an immense, immense um, impact on my life. So that book in particular. Yeah. So how do you read? Do you mm -hmm. set aside time every day? Yeah, I have an activity tracker that I use, which manages a lot of the smaller goals that are setting me in the right direction and that I'd like to compound over time. And within that activity tracker, I have a morning routine, a post-workday routine, and an evening routine. And each one of those blocks of time has dedicated slots for physically reading books. And then whenever I'm in the car or I'm at the gym, I'm always trying to listen to podcasts or audiobooks as well. Wow. So you're a, a self-assessor. You do that quite a bit. Do you also journal? I do. Yeah. So every morning as part of my morning routine, I have a journal and I use Evernote and it starts off with something that I'm grateful for, for the day. And then I jump right into a paragraph reflecting on that thing that I'm grateful for. So I do, sometimes it's more than that. Sometimes it's a little less, but I definitely journal every day as well. Yeah. I love that. So you're a sales professional. What kind of sales are you in? Sure. I, I work in software sales. I sell transportation management software for a small company based in Lee, New Hampshire. And that has provided me the opportunity to grow a lot over the last four years. So I've been with the company for over four years now, which is pretty wild to think about. And I love sales because I think that sales as a profession gives you the opportunity to exercise a lot of the things that we read and talk about in personal development. And that's what's really unique about that profession. I really enjoy it. Absolutely. You get out of it what you put into it. That is so true. Okay. And so does that job give you flexibility to where you can work on your side hustle? Or is it exclusively nights and weekends that you're working on book thinkers? Yeah, no, they, they give me a lot of flexibility. What's nice is I applied. So originally when I took the position, it was not a remote position. I worked in an office space that was dedicated for that typical 8.30 to 5.30 work schedule. But I write a book called The 4-Hour Workweek, which mm. I know you're a fan of as well. Yeah. And I applied Tim's framework uh, to becoming a remote employee by one day a week, two days a week, three days a week, and then eventually moving away from the office so that I couldn't even go to the office if I wanted to when I lived in Jacksonville. And now I'm, I'm a remote employee. And uh, the company that I work for is aware of BookThinker, definitely supportive of it. So what's nice about having a remote schedule is that I get to prioritize my time. And what's nice about working in sales is that it's a results-based profession where you, know, you get out of it what you put into it, as you had just said. So you know, as long as I'm getting my work done for my full-time position, I have the flexibility to work on books as much as I'd like to. Yeah, I had a side hustle when I was in software sales too. And I was able to help a lot of my coworkers to purchase 
not only investment properties, but sometimes primary residences. And um, I don't think my boss always knew, though, how much time I was devoting to real estate because it was, it was, it was, I wasn't working from home at all times. I would go into the office quite a bit, but I would feel an obligation to my employer to give them at least 45 hours a week. And I found that that was a lot more than other people were, were giving them. Uh, but I could, um, you know, work just as hard, if not harder than everybody on my sales team and software, and then use my nights and weekends. And every once in a while, take a call during the software day. But you know, when you, when you're selling real, when you're selling real estate, most of the time you're working when other people are not working. So that's Saturday, mm-hmm. that's Sunday. That's as soon as you get done with your software work at five or six o'clock. So that was kind of how I prioritized my time. But I like that you brought up the four hour work week. <laughs> You'll like this. I bring a suitcase with me when I travel and it, it is strictly for books. And I don't care that it cost me $50 in excess baggage fees. For me, it's worth it to have those books with me. Uh, but unfortunately, I didn't bring the four-hour work week, work week with me. But I've read it more than once, and I've internalized some of its content. So we could probably talk about it. That might benefit listeners, especially those who haven't read it. And if, if someone has read it, then it would be a good refresher. But uh, what, did you, what did you like most about the four-hour work week? Are the things that you remember oh. from it? Yeah, wow. Well, there, there are a lot of things. So I'll start off by telling you that I actually have a tattoo on my wrist that says reality is negotiable and it's from the four hour work week. You know, that, that book, uh, it's done a lot for me. I mean, you know, the common sense rules of the real world are a fragile collection of socially reinforced illusion. The fact that reality is negotiable and you can live the life that you want. That's what podcasts like these are all about. And that's what a book like the four hour work week, it's what it meant to me. Um, you know, I have a lot of favorite quotes from the book as well. One of the biggest ones that's had an impact on my life, I think, is a quote that says that a person's success in life can usually be measured by the number of uncomfortable conversations he or she is willing to have. That's been a big one in my life. So the four-hour work week, I think it's one of those books that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but I gift that book a lot. And I also bring a suitcase of books whenever I travel internationally. So I like that you do that. (laughs) That's awesome, man. I can't believe that. We have a lot in common. I particularly like the part about being different because I feel different than my peers a lot, as you can imagine. But I don't strive mm-hmm. to be different. I'm not you know, one of those weirdos. Like Ferris writes in the book, I believe he says that different is better when it's more effective or more fun. And I'm, I'm definitely experiencing that. Um, there were some other things too that I remember, like if everyone is defining a problem or solving it one way and the results aren't good, it's time to ask, well, shit, what if I do the opposite? So uh, he was in software sales too for a time, Ferris, the author. And he talked about how nobody was calling uh, prospective customers at 7 to 8 a.m. or 5 to 6 p.m. And so he was able to work a lot less hours and get more people on the phone um, just by figuring that out. And I I love that. I was definitely one. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that I love that as well. Yeah, I was definitely one during my career to identify what my less observant peers were wasting time on and then being one who wanted to maximize my time and productivity and ultimately my income. Things that were inefficient stood out to me like a fatty in Prague. <laughs> Everybody's real fit in Prague for some reason. But conquering fear too by defining fear, that was a big thing. And I like how he quoted the Stoics quite a bit. 
Um, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said that you should set aside a certain number of days during which you're content with uh, the scantiest of fare. You remember that? And the the dress, like you should should wear like a white t-shirt saying to yourself the whole time that like, is this really what I feared? Because this is not that big a deal. Yeah, I'm also big into stoic philosophy. So we could probably talk about that too. But I love all of those points. And, you know, in some of Tim's other books too, he he provides a lot more value on some of these points. But I think the four-hour work week is a good starting point for anybody who's fed up with what they're currently doing and is looking around them and knows that they could be doing better than their peers, but wants to know how. You know, and, and to piggyback off of one of the things that you had mentioned, Tim talks about how there are three ways to are the three ways to increase time or to automate things, eliminate things, or delegate things. So in a world where you can identify or properly identify things that are inefficient in your life, you know, though I love the 80-20 rule, right? 20% of your activity generates 80% of the results. So what chunk of that 80% activity that is inefficient for you can be automated or eliminated or delegated to other people so that it can free up more time for you. I mean, that's such a big part of my life. That's a good point. I think that we're stuck in the industrial age, or the beginning of the industrial revolution where everybody's working a nine to five. And it's, it's an ancient way to go about living because we all know that we're not all effective at the same time. And we all don't need eight hours of sitting in a cube to be effective. And so it's, it's somewhat antiquated. And then what happens is you get people who often use being busy as a crutch and, or they're trying to prove to the boss that they're working. And those are the people who generally, people who are trying to fool the boss all day and appear busy, those are the ones who go home and are drained of energy when they get home. I feel like if you're doing what you should be doing and maximizing your eight or nine hours or however many hours you're working, you will be energized. Like for you and me in software, it would be prospecting and doing deals and things that fire us up, helping to solve somebody's problem. And then after work, you're going to the gym and then that only fuels more energy. And so it compounds from there because I like to say, if you go to the gym, you're not going to stop at McDonald's on the way home. You're probably going to pick up a book that night and eat a healthy meal. And then that's going to portend better sleep. And then you wake up the next day and it's, you know, compounding habits. So you're only in your, you're 20 in your twenties, right? Yeah, I'm 25 years old. And and just before you ask whatever question, I love everything you just said. I couldn't agree with it more. It's something that I talk about with my little accountability group every single week. You're not going to stop at McDonald's on your way home from the gym. It's never going to happen. So that's that's a lot of value. I hope everybody pays a lot of attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. He also, so one of the things I'm curious about is what, do you have an end game? Because, you know, I, I went the unconventional route and I took a year off when I was 34 years old. And that since turned into more permanent retirement. But do you have a goal with your investments, or do you do you foresee being CEO someday, or do you want to retire at you know thirty two, or what? What do you? What's your plan? Yeah, it's it's been interesting with me because along the way I've defined a bunch of different end games, and they seem to always change. But the one underlying constant is just that I would like to be financially free. I would like my income generating assets to exceed what I could spend in the lifestyle that I've become accustomed to living. And at that point, which I think will happen within the next five to eight years, for sure, hopefully sooner, you know, at that point, um, 
I think that I'll be at that ultimate piece where it's completely up to me 100% of the time what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And I, that ultimate sense of peace and uh, that Zen feeling of just like, I, you know, I, I'm confident no matter what I'm, you know, no matter what I'm choosing to do, it's going to energize me. Like that's my sense of success. That's the end game for me. And then how I define that or how I get there has been sort of like a fluid motion over the last couple of years, but I'm definitely taking a lot of different steps in order to get there. I like what you said there. I remember in Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl said that what man Man doesn't need a tensionless state, but rather a freely chosen task to work on. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but I think that uh, Tim Ferriss talks about this too. He emphasizes that doing less meaningful work so that you can focus on things of greater personal importance is not laziness. And that kind of ties into what we were talking about is in people wanting to appear busy or being busy all the time to fill the void that anxiety might fill, right? If they weren't so busy. Sure. So, yeah. and he, he talks about like, if it, if it is a personal project that you want to pursue at some point, there's never a good time to quit your job. The traffic lights of life are never going to align. I remember him saying that. And, and that's, that's important too. I mean, whether you're going to get married or have a kid or travel to Portugal, there's just never a good time to do it. You make the decision if it's something that's important to you, and then you will correct, make corrections along the way. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, you and I, <laughs> shit, you remind me very much a lot, uh, uh, very much of myself when I was 25. Yeah. And, and I feel as though when I'm listening to you and talking to you that we share probably the majority of the same beliefs about pretty much everything at this point. <laughs> I, you know, I, one of the things that I've discovered that I love is traveling. And I think part of that definition of personal success or freedom or my end game is the ability to travel freely and not having to worry about expenses or owing my time to other people. And that, that level of freedom is financial, but it's, it's more than that. And, and you just hit it on the head with a couple of those good points right there. Well, there's, there's a lot of stars that need to align for you to be able to do that in the next seven or so years too. And I think that a lot of folks in the financial independence community, they may understand it, but they don't discuss it much. So when I was your age, the real estate industry was booming and homes, it was always said that homes would appreciate forever. They'd always gone up in value as far as we knew. And you could get zero down loans and finance 100% and you could get an adjustable rate mortgage because why not? Because homes appreciate in value and you're stupid to rent when you can buy, right? And it's easy to, to, to get a loan. So what happened, of course, in December of 07, the, the recession started and the value of homes in the area where I live was cut in half. And people like to say, they like to think that according to Buffett's principle, that they will be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. But when CNN is running on their ticker all day that another 700,000 people lost their jobs in March of 08, or the unemployment rate is now 7%, and then it's 9.5%. And, you know, it just keeps growing and things are getting worse. You can't predict how you're going to feel when that happens. And so if you have, let's say you have $50,000 to invest by the time you're 27 years old, when you see your 401k balance go from 50 down to 38, you might think that you're going to start throwing money in, but 
to know that every dollar that you put in could be cut in half tomorrow because that's been the trend for the last several months. It, I think people are kidding themselves. So anyway, in, in terms of financial independence, retire early, people have this idea that, well, the stock market returns 7 to 10% every year. So um, in seven years, I will, my, my money should double every 10 years as long as I get 7% on my money. And I try to encourage people because I, I coach them. Um, I coach clients on how to become financially independent using real estate. And I think it's important because those who are relying on Vanguard funds, and I know you're not doing this, but I think it's, I, I love your approach. But those who are focusing only on Vanguard funds neglect to realize that you could have seven years of a flat stock market or a decline yeah. stock market. You know, Japan's stock market stayed flat for like 30 years. That could happen. And it's very unpredictable. So I, it just seems to me that the last 10 years have led so many people to think that the, that the party is going to continue. And, and it may. We don't know. But um, anyway, I, I think a good hedge against that is to invest in real estate. Because as you said, once your passive income from real estate exceeds your expenses, that's it, man. You're financially free. And then you can yeah. allow the, the home values to, to, to decline 50%. It doesn't matter to you because the, the rental income is still going to be coming in. So, sure. I, all, of, all of those are amazing points. And I had started listening to Bigger Pockets about six months ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. And I wasn't somebody who bought a, bought a multi-unit instead of a book or listen to a podcast, but I got together with a few friends and we started a real estate investment group. And although we're a little slow to move, we did close on our first property about a week and a half or two weeks ago at the time of this recording. And we went through the inspection process and it was amazing for me to walk through with the inspector. We brought general contractor with us. That's a family friend of one of the guys in my group. And we also brought a property management, our property manager out to the site to walk through the property with us. And that was my first taste of you know, a multi-unit investment property. And we're in the middle of negotiations. Hopefully it goes positive right now, but that'll be my first five units under contract. Wow. And at, Go ahead. at 25 years old, being able to take that first step and being able to see it and feel it and touch it and experience it is so much different than just listening. And I've always been one, I, actually this is from the four hour work week. Tim says in there, and he might've been quoting somebody else, but he says, many a false step was made by standing still. And that's the worst thing that people can do. And I think people get fooled in today's environment uh, by being self-help junkies and thinking that that's progressing them forward in life. But like what you just said, I, I couldn't believe in real estate any more than I do right now. And I'm setting myself up uh, with this real estate investment group that we've formed together to move fast and continue to double our activity every six months. And that's the goal moving forward. And if the economy goes down in two years, we will have established some credibility with some banks and we will have created processes that are working. And we're not going to try to do that while everything falls down. And we won't have to rely on that feeling like you had said, the Warren Buffett line. And I think that it, you know, everybody is fearful when they are, whatever the line is, you know, we're not going to have to, see how we feel when it happens because we'll have systems in place and we'll have relationships built and we'll be a couple of years into this hopefully before anything bad happens. Man, that's great. Yeah, because the hardest part is taking action. 
And I love what you said about moving fast. I think you should move fast and fail fast. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So real estate's been fun for me. I think it's one of a few areas in my portfolio that I'm paying attention to, but it's been a really great experience and I, I couldn't recommend bigger pockets to people more than I already do. I talk about it all the time. Part of what you're doing with book thinkers is connecting authors and entrepreneurs. Can you talk a lot, a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so something that's been unique about the book thinkers Instagram community has been that it's provided me the opportunity to talk to a lot of my business or entrepreneurial mentors. So a lot of times entrepreneurs, they become successful, they sell a business, and then they write a book. And those books often give us tools to add to our tool belt that I think are very invaluable. But the unique thing is they need people to market their books. So even somebody who's sold a business for $100 million, they might not have a network in the book space. So what I've been doing recently is connecting with a lot of these authors and entrepreneurs and just creating a little network with me as sort of the middleman and connecting all of these people together. And it's been really fascinating. Uh, from a marketing perspective, you know, people come to me and they'll ask me to promote their book and I do charge for that service because it takes my time to read their books and to talk about them. Um, but I'm forming this little network amongst all of these people that is helping me out, but it's helping them out as well because it's like, hey, Nick, do you know anybody who does this? Or, hey, Nick, do you know anybody that does that? And I'm beginning to connect some of these people, which is a lot of fun. That is really cool. So are you hoping that that side hustle exceeds your primary income at some point? Yeah. So I will be launching a mobile, a, a new mobile application with BookThinkers. And we talked about moving fast and failing fast. I did launch a platform about a year and a half ago called BookThinkers. It was a social and mobile platform that allowed readers to create a virtual library, put their book notes in there, set systematic reminders to retain and implement more information from the books there reading. It used Amazon's affiliate program as sort of a back-end database. And Amazon changed things up on me. It no longer became a free database to use. And they added some efficiency metrics, which basically shut my site down because I couldn't attain those efficiency metrics for using their affiliate program. And so I had to shut things down. And at the same time, the development company that I had outsourced all of the mobile and web development to, they shut down. And all of the employees of that company took jobs elsewhere. So I was left with this broken platform that I'd never really released to the public. I've never really, I've never publicly talked about it on my Instagram. But over the past couple of months, I've focused a lot of my time on creating a new vision for book thinkers, a new mobile application that'll hopefully be coming out by probably December or January. And that'll be a subscription based mobile application. And I'll leverage my Instagram community as well as all of the networking that I've done in this space to basically you know, gain an initial user base and use the laws of uh, virality to continue <laughs> to grow that platform over time. So that, that's definitely something that I'm continuing to focus more of my energy on and to create a subscription-based business that is sort of automated and scalable without my direct input all day long, every day. So BookThinkers has a couple of different ways that it's being monetized. Those author promotions definitely help a lot. And uh, the affiliate links in my profile that still do sit there definitely help. But the, the mobile application with the subscription is going to be a lot of fun to play around with. And that's a great business model. Anything that's subscription-based or software as a service or 
rental income, you know, passive income of any sort. That's just, I love that idea. Um, are you conscious about keeping your spending down? Are you strict about how precise you are with investing into your side hustle? Like, do you keep strict accounts and budgets and all of that? I do. I mean, it is a legally registered business. So I have separate bank accounts and things like that for it. And I, you know, I, I definitely pay a lot of attention to it. What's nice is at the age of 25, I've learned to say no to a lot of other things, which has helped me out a lot. Uh, I think for the first couple of years in my 20s, I was making really good money and I was going out and having a good time and traveling recklessly and spending a lot of money. But you know, I, I understand the principles of compound interest and compounding in general. So. Oh, yeah, man. You've got so much time for compounding to take root. It's just a matter of getting the funds in there now, right? To let it, let it go, man. Good for you. You're going to be yeah. so much... You're going to be so far ahead of your peers. I mean, you're, yeah, you're on fire, dude. I love it. Well, I appreciate it. And, and I have to give all credit to the books that I'm reading. I mean, these, <laughs> people, these people who have done what we want to do and who have done it successfully, they've all written books. Mm-hmm. And what's nice is you can pick and choose what tools you want to take out of each book and put into your own tool belt. And then you get to choose when to use those tools, right? So, you know, if you have a hammer in your tool belt, you might not use it to screw something into a wall. And what's nice about that is having a vast amount of tools from the world's most successful people allows me to pick and choose when to use them and how to use them. And it allows me to leapfrog my competition, which is my entire peer group in all of these different areas. And uh, you know, I give all the credit to the books that I'm reading and the people that I'm learning from. I love that. Yeah, there's a Jim Rohn quote that I use quite a bit. He says that the true rewards in life are on the top shelf. And the way that you get there is by standing on the books you read. And I've always, not always, but for the last four or five years of early retirement, I can see that the, the top shelf is touring castles in Europe. And the top shelf is not setting an alarm clock. And the top shelf is my wife making breakfast this morning and us deciding to go to the gym and me doing deadlifts and then getting in the sauna and then coming back to prepare for this podcast and getting to meet young guys like you or at least telephonically. Is that a word? Telephonically? <laughs> over, the, over the web. I don't know if I've read that word before, <laughs> but it might be a word. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So you, you're very articulate. Was your, did you take public speaking classes like in school? Yeah, so I've, I've got a couple of funny stories for you, and I'll start at the beginning of this journey. And I appreciate the compliment, by the way, yeah. because I've worked hard at it. I had a lot of anxieties when I was younger. I was definitely socially awkward, and I was never somebody who felt confident telling a joke in front of a group of people or talking to a girl in early middle school or early high school. There was a time in early high school where I was giving a Spanish presentation. I didn't know any Spanish at the time, so you were able to use a script in front of the class. And I remember it was a role play, and I had a partner with me. And and during the role play or the little scene, I was supposed to be eating out of a bowl of popcorn. So I remember almost trying to get out of the presentation by not going to school that day, but I went to school, and I was eating the popcorn in front of the class, and I couldn't read off of the script, and I was shaking, and I dropped the bowl of popcorn on the floor in front of my entire Spanish class, and I left the classroom. <laughs> and at some point, reflecting after that experience, which was extremely embarrassing, I was reflecting on the experience, and I thought, it doesn't need to be like this. And 
around the same time, I had a Patriot player, the New England Patriots, it's a football team. I had a Patriot player living in my neighborhood and he seemed to be larger than life. And around the same time that that had happened, I had a conversation with him because I got to know his kids a little bit and he was over at my house sometimes, my parents' house. And he said, every day you've got to do something that makes you uncomfortable to get over that fear. So I started to slowly but surely every couple of weeks do something that made me uncomfortable and I would increase that frequency. And uh, then I took a role uh, with a company called Collegiate Entrepreneurs in my early college days. And that required running your own painting business. That also required doing all of your own sales and marketing, which came in the form of door-to-door sales for the most part. So we rehearsed for weeks. We did role-playing. We did all sorts of things. I created this fantastic script that when I knocked on a house, I'd be able to convince any homeowner to let me give them a free estimate for house painting. And I remember I went out my first day, knocked on the first door. A woman answered the door. She was very friendly. And I sat there and I froze for a second. And eventually I mustered up the courage to say, hey, would you like a free estimate? And she just sat there dumbfounded and said, a free estimate on what? And I'm like, oh, I forgot the rest of my script. I'm a college student trying to pay for college. I'm running a house painting business. And I noticed that your house needed work. And she kind of just closed the door on me. And I thought to myself, wow, I can't believe I forgot the rest of my script. Why did this happen? So again, I was reflecting on that experience. I had a poor first day knocking on doors. And I thought it shouldn't be like this. I should be able to communicate with anybody just like I am, you know, with my parents or my close friends or collegiate classmates. So I went back to school and I enrolled in public speaking as a minor. So I took a couple public speaking classes. And what that allowed me to do was get up in front of the room and speak in front of my classmates in a low impact environment where the stakes weren't very high. And I was able to desensitize myself to that anxiety through repetition and forced exposure to something that I knew was going to make me uncomfortable. And Through doing that, it also allowed me to form this foundation where I was comfortable speaking. And then through the full-time sales position I have now, I fly all over the country and sometimes internationally to give sales presentations. And I've spoken in front of hundreds of people at keynote speeches for different collegiate events and things like that. I've spoken on TV with a camera in my face. And now I speak on my Instagram in front of thousands and thousands or tens of thousands of people every week, a couple times a week. And it feels so much more natural than it used to. So for anybody that has public speaking anxieties or wants to become more articulate, I hope some of those stories helped you realize that it's possible to go from somebody who was inarticulate, anxious, and awkward to somebody who feels confident in their speech and doesn't need to think about things anymore before he says them 400 times. <laughs> That's a great story. For many reasons. I I think that if you can speak in public, you can probably sell. And if you can sell or present well, you'll always have a job. And it makes you a standout in being able to do that because aside from death, public speaking is people's biggest fear. And you and I are, are far past that now to where it's second nature. But it's like it's like the real estate investing that we were talking about earlier. You have to take action, but somehow force yourself to take action. And I know there are little tricks that you can use, like uh, walking around outside really fast or doing jumping jacks or push-ups right before you are about to present. But do you have any little tricks like that that, that 
you coach people to use or that you've used yourself just to try to get over the, um, the anxiety or nervousness that you, that you might have? Yeah, absolutely. I have a ton of them. Um, <laughs> number one, like with the, with the physiology thing, what I do is a power pose. So before I walk into a conference room or before I record a video or before I have a conversation like this, I might sit there and flex my biceps in an upright position with my chest up and my head up. And putting yourself in a dominant position or a, or a power position, I had watched a TED Talk where um, the woman, and I forget her name, but she had talked a lot about um, physiology and how putting yourself in power positions can increase uh, your ability to be confident in what you're about to say. And that presence can be felt by other people. So that's one thing is definitely power positions. Another thing would be humor. I remember whenever I would do cold calling or door-to-door selling, I would try to bring a partner and I would try to be lighthearted and telling jokes right before I rang the doorbell. And that would put you in a calm state of mind. You'd have a smile on your face and that smile on your face can be contagious to the person you're going to speak with. So that's another one. Uh, I also, especially from behind a phone, smile before you dial. People can always tell on the other side of the phone whether you're having a good or a bad day. So that's a good tip for people in sales. And then the last thing that's really helped me. I used to have a lot of verbal pauses and I'm far from perfect, but I used to use the words like or ah uh, or um or so in every single sentence that I said. And what I did was I held myself externally accountable by, by telling my friends that if they caught me using verbal pauses, no matter where we were or what we were doing, I would have to drop down and do 10 push-ups. So there were times where I was out at bars trying to talk to girls in a group setting with some of my friends and they would point me out and I'd have to drop down and do 10 push-ups. And if you've ever had to do that, there is nothing more embarrassing. And then trying to explain that you're working on yourself to, you know, in your early 20s to a girl. And I'm trying to work on my speech and my buddy caught me saying the word, um, and now I have to do push-ups. And she's like, okay, and walks the other direction. So that definitely helped subconsciously rewire my brain to stay away from those words, at least at the time. I've adopted a couple of them now again, but it's helped out a lot. That's cool. Yeah, I used to record myself giving sales presentations and you don't realize how much you're saying um until you hear yourself and I'm still guilty of it. And funny enough, when I was on Bigger Pockets, I had listened to several of their episodes prior to being a guest and I noticed that one of the hosts, Brandon Turner, he says like a lot. And I thought, well, in order to identify with him, I'm going to relax my my normal manner of speaking. And if I throw in a like, I'm not going to worry about it too much because that's, that's like how he speaks. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, once I did that, it's gotten me into a bad habit of doing it as if my, I've tricked my brain into thinking it's acceptable and it's not. <laughs> um, so I need some work on that too. And, and yeah, um is a problem for me because I don't realize that I'm saying it and I'm probably not as practiced as when I was giving three or four sales presentations a week, you know, now I'm doing podcasts maybe once, maybe once a week, sometimes twice a week, but it's not as often as I was doing sales calls and doing presentations. So I'm a little bit out of practice. So I love what you're saying. And yeah, you don't use um at all. <laughs> I haven't heard it one time. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's really impressive, dude. When I was in school, in those public speaking classes, the teachers or the professors would record each student and then you would have to go back and watch your video and tally the number of verbal pauses that you used. 
And I remember she would quiz you after you got off stage sometimes. She would say, how many times do you think you said the word like? And I would say three times in two and a half minutes. And I'd go back and watch the video and it'd be 32 times in two and a half minutes. And a lot of people don't realize how often they're using it. But if you can eliminate that language or those verbal pauses from your language, you can instantly sound more articulate and credible in any scenario, which is really fun. I'll buy that. And I can tell you when you're walking around places like Vienna, you can hear Americans coming from a mile away because you hear like every other sentence, if not every sentence. (laughs) But that conquering fear, that ties into what we were talking about with Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek, where you can not only expose yourself to desensitize yourself, but practicing poverty is something that he talks about. And I think that that ties into us being entrepreneurs in that we have to keep our costs down, right? You have to have a P&L if you're managing a business or a side hustle. And that makes it... Um, see, I just said I'm there. <laughs> But yeah, conquering fear will help you. It'll enable you to take more risks in life. There's no reward at the end of life for playing your cards so close to the best, so to speak. So I always encourage people, lose your arrogance, take some chances, be vulnerable. Like when you were in front of that woman um, trying to, you know, when you knocked on her door and you were at a loss for words, she probably wanted to help you when you, when you jumped the gun. It was like, do you want, you know, you want an estimate? So just that vulnerability, people will try to help you. So if you say, you know, I'm having trouble saying like to your sales, your colleague in sales or your, even your customer, hey, I'm giving a sales presentation and I've been struggling with using the word like. If you have a good relationship with him, he'll help you. So my friends who are the most successful are those who crave criticism and they take it as feedback and data to be considered so that they can get better. Yeah, I had heard you mention that a couple of times on previous podcasts. I I love criticism and I encourage it, constructive criticism. And my friend group, what's nice is we form this little accountability group that meets every week and we talk about our goals and what we hit, what we missed. And we give each other raw, honest, constructive feedback. And nobody takes that offensively anymore. Uh, There's no offense to be taken. We're all trying to better ourselves. And if you can surround yourself, if you can surround yourself with people who have similar goals, but then are open to giving you constructive feedback, fail a lot faster. You'll recognize more failures a lot faster, but you'll be able to grow a lot faster. And Tim even has a quote in the four-hour work week to bring up the book again that says, what we fear doing the most is usually what we need to do. And running in that direction of fear or using one of Tim's practices, which is fear setting and outlining those fears and then checking them off, like I'm willfully going to do this activity now, it'll definitely help accelerate your growth in a lot of different areas of life. And it also helps you flex that willpower muscle. One of the things that I like to do every single day is at the end of my shower, I will turn the water down to freezing cold temperatures for 15 to 30 seconds. And that willpower, that moment of should I do it or should I not do it gets replicated in so many other areas of your life. Like, should I snooze my alarm or not snooze my alarm? And once you gain control of your mind, in that split second, once you train your subconscious and you gain more control over your willpower, then you can run headfirst into those fears. And it's helped my life tremendously. That public speaking example is a good example of it. I knew I was anxious, but signed up for public speaking classes anyway, because I desired a better life. And I knew that that could help me get there. 
yeah, I do the same thing in the shower. The last 15 to 30 seconds are ice cold. And I can tell you for whatever reason in Prague and Vienna, the water is way colder than any place, any other place that I've been, but I love it. And I try to shower in the morning because I find that it, it gives me that early psychological win and I'm ready to embrace and attack the day after getting a cold shower. And I like what you said too, about your friends group. I think that friends have similar sensitivity levels. <laughs> I really do. And a lot of it uh, has to do with feedback and how you take it and whether or not you're all leveling up together. So I, I think that we tend to arrive at the level of our sensitivity levels with others. I am going through your Instagram as we speak, and I see that you have read, have you read Vagabonding? Yeah, absolutely. I love Vagabonding. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's a great book. I mean, it completely changed my outlook on world travel. Yeah, me too. I'm a big fan for obvious reasons. I think that Tim Ferriss wrote the foreword for that book, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and he, he actually reached out to Ralph Potts as well and helped produce the audiobook version, which I've also listened to. I've read it and I've listened to it. So it's a fantastic book. And travel's been such a big part of my life over the last 12 months, and it will continue to be a big part of my life in the near future, at least. I, and I give a lot of credit to why I took that first step um, to vagabonding. There's not a single definition of what vagabonding is, but the author would say that it is the act of leaving the orderly world behind to travel for an extended period. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but in doing so, he emphasizes creativity and adventure and awareness or presence, which has become in vogue nowadays, I think because of all the distractions that we face with our smartphones. But part of vagabonding, he also says, is to you're orient, orienting your life so as to live deliberately. And doing that enables you to make the freedom to travel possible, if that makes any sense. So for me, it was the pursuit of financial independence. That's what made it possible. And he has a chapter on how it's something that you must earn because if you're a counterculture dropout or you inherit a bunch of money, those are the people who say that they're traveling to find themselves. But he says what you're really looking for is the reason that you started travel. Those people are really looking for the reason they started traveling in the first place. So I, I really, really love that book. Um, and then from there, you just you embrace what I would call adaptive simplicity, which is just foregoing, foregoing things in favor of experiences, which is the life that we're living now. So I've been traveling the world since... April 30th of 2015. And most uh -huh. of it's been slow travel. My wife and I are in a different spot for about a month at a time. And that's primarily because um, Airbnb hosts are willing to negotiate. We can stay a month. But yeah, last month we were in Prague and now we're in Vienna. Like you had said, I mean, the value of traveling doesn't hinge upon the number of stamps in your passport when you get home. And Rolf says that the slow nuanced experience of one country is better than the hurried superficial experience of 40. So before ever going out and traveling and trying to cross a bunch of things off my list, I had read this book. And what that allowed me to do was my first solo travel experience, because I'm a single guy and I'm not in a relationship. My first solo travel experience was five weeks in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And like you said, I was able to negotiate with an Airbnb host five weeks, got a huge discount. And 
use some miles because I travel a lot for work, use some airline miles, got a free round trip ticket. And I just said, I'm going to go for five weeks. I don't know Spanish very well. I don't know anything about Argentina, but I've heard through some people like Tim Ferriss, who had an excellent time there, that this is an excellent place to travel and go visit. So I did five weeks in Argentina with a couple days mixed in here and there in uh, Uruguay while I was down there, just took the ferry over. And I had such an amazing experience. One of the things that Rolf also says in vagabonding is that you should be a Columbus to whole new continents, but continents within yourself, you know, open new trade channels, not of trade, but of thought. And being interested in what's around you is a spiritual exercise. So I would just sit on park benches and observe people going by. And I would walk through the streets and experience things in a different culture that I had never experienced before. And I loved it. I had such a fantastic experience. And then after that, this year, I've spent some time in Canada. I have, I did, uh, let's see, I did two and a half or about three weeks in Medellin, Colombia, which was a lot of fun. And I did a little over a week in Aruba. And then I'm going to Portugal and Spain coming up here in less than a month. And then I've been to Costa Rica before, but going back to Costa Rica for New Year's. So a lot of travel this year and the remote full-time sales position plus the supplemental income through my different investments has helped me achieve that, which has been a lot of fun. First, you heard that ladies, huh? Single, not in a relationship. I'll link to his profile <laughs> in the show notes. <laughs> um, I took my wife to Buenos Aires. Did you not come back calling it Buenos Aires and not Buenos Aires just because? I, I, uh, I, I just... It's easier to communicate Buenos Aires to everybody yeah. who might be listening. But yeah, I definitely did. And that form of Spanish is pretty harsh. And I'm in the process of learning Spanish. But uh, yeah, they speak a harsh Spanish down there. They Buenos sure Aires. They sure, they sure do. There are places in the world that I've visited that I felt it was really pretentious to call it by the foreign name initially, like Buenos Aires. But when you're there for an extended period of time, you almost can't help it. it it's a weird thing. You know, Edinburgh, uh, Scotland is the same way. So I visited there and they call it Edinburgh. And once you're there for a week, you come back saying Edinburgh and it, it feels dishonest to, to call it anything else. <laughs> but we <You're> also, right. <laughs> I probably should have said it. Uh, the other thing too is in the U.S. a lot of times we say Medellin, Colombia. Yeah, and I hear a lot of people say that, but after being there and experiencing the local culture for weeks, Medellin is the correct way to pronounce that, and that's how the locals say it. So you're right with Buenos Aires. That's, <laughs> you know. that's hilarious. Yeah, I didn't pick that up when you said Medellin because I would I would call it Medellin too, and that's because of the double yeah. L that they pronounce Jean south of let's say Central America, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, in 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 Argentina they take that double L and they use it as an SH sound, but a less, less than the Medellin, more of like if you're talking about street is calle in Spanish, Central American or Mexican Spanish, but then it's cache while, while you're in Argentina. So it can throw you for a loop. Sometimes we're not as interested in our surroundings as we would be if we're in another country. So spending time in a foreign place or a different country is a spiritual experience. And I think what Ralph was saying, or at least the way that I interpreted it is that you're taken out of your comfort zone, you're plopped into an uncomfortable place, and all of a sudden you're realizing things that you would never realize. Like for me, walking down the street in Boston, I would never realize the way that a shop owner is interacting with somebody 
or I'm not listening to the language around me as much or looking for differences. But when you're plopped into a foreign country, you're more aware and present than you would be in your day-to-day life in that country than you would be elsewhere, which is a really cool experience. I love it. And, and I'll continue to travel and I have big plans to continue to travel. I think that I'll do another five plus week stay in January slash February again, just because in Boston, it gets pretty cold and I'm not a big fan of the cold weather. So I'm thinking of spending some time in Peru and seeing Machu Picchu and hiking the Incan trails and things like that. And a lot of people, you know, they'll have to take work off to go do those things. And thankfully, I don't have to. I can continue to work on everything that I have going on in life, but from a different country. And I'm comfortable doing that now, which is really nice. You know, who was it that said that most men are living lives of quiet desperation? And so they never got the opportunity to do something like that. Yeah. Um, But, you know, the prosperity of our times gives us the ability to work from anywhere. And so that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, um, going back to vagabonding, Potts talks about how Americans have an insane duty to fear and fashion and monthly payments to things that they don't need. And um, because of that, that's we force our travels into these short stints where you try to do it all in seven days. And I'm going to experience that next week. So part of what I do, one of my side hustles is a tour guide business where people will come and visit me here. And so they're coming on the 14th and they're going to spend more money in seven days than I spend in about six weeks, <laughs> which is crazy, right? But you know, quick travel is expensive travel and slow travel is inexpensive wow. travel, which I'm sure you've experienced like in Medellin and, and places like that. But yeah, I like to talk about what an amazing time it is to be alive because we can basically hop in a tube, right? And be, be within, within 24 hours, be anywhere in the world, right? And the cost of air travel in real terms has been cut in half in the last 30 years. And the parts of yeah. the, the world that we're visiting now, like Prague, for example, 30 years ago, you couldn't visit Prague. So we've got this fairy tale city that we can access at any time now. And it was all behind the Iron Curtain of the Soviet Union when I was a kid. So, see, I, I, I was telling my wife last night at dinner that you, you still get the sense of the communist past when you travel to places in, in Eastern Europe. There's still block housing, and many of the buildings are gray, and the older people don't speak English, and there's grumpiness and you get the sense that they resent you. And, and I think as the world becomes more westernized and materialistic, all of that is probably going to go, go away. It's just a wonderful time to be alive. So, Yeah, on that point, I'd love to share a quick story. Um, yeah. I mean, um, in that same vein, 30 years ago, Pablo Escobar was running things in Medellin, Colombia. And <laughs> even 15 years ago, you really couldn't visit as an American tourist. and. I did a a graffiti tour up in the mountains around Medellin and some of the outside. It was actually called Comuna 13, which is a barrio or neighborhood well outside of the city where there's still a lot of poverty and things like that. And uh, it's so crazy to hear the stories that these people have experienced and to meet the locals. And you still get that sense of what it used to be like or what it was like 15 or 30 years ago. But that is quickly going away, like you had said. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think as vagabonding concludes, the real culture is the exact culture that you find. But if you want to go experience that culture of the past, like that Soviet culture or the Pablo Escobar era culture of Medellin, like you need to go 
do that now and it will be a little uncomfortable, but a lot of that stuff is going away, unfortunately. And the only way you'll be able to get it 30 years from now or 100 years from now is reading about it. That's a wonderful. Yes, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I know that in Vagabonding, Potts referred to John Murr, who wrote that people who visit Yosemite only to sightsee for a few hours and turn around and go back home. Uh, he referred to those people as the time poor. And that is people who are coming to visit me now. I hate to call them out, but they're, they're time poor because they're not going to be able to, they can't sit down with someone in East Germany if they go to Berlin and ask them what it was like living under communism or living within a kilometer of the Berlin Wall because there's just no time to do that, right? You've got to sightsee and you've got to, yeah. you've got to get out of there. Potts would say that it's people who are obsessed with tending to their material wealth and social status that they can't spare. They can't spare the time to truly explore the wonders of the people and the culture of different places. If it's all right with you, I'll ask you some fun, quick questions and then we'll wrap up. Does that sound good? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Why does it feel so wrong to read only half a book? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. <laughs> People ask me all the time, do you finish every book you read? And I do because, well, for me, I think one of the nice things about reading is that that little nugget of wisdom that could change your life could come on any page. It could come on the first page of a book or it could come on the last page of a book. And I don't want to miss out on that opportunity. So I don't have a general fear of missing out in life with what my friends are doing on weekends, but I do have a general fear of missing out on that home run takeaway that a book could deliver you because it's happened so many times with me in my life where I've put down a book and I've started another one and I pick it back up and it something impacts me at the end of a book. So I think that's probably why. Over the next, let's say, two years, do you think it's better to read 100 books twice or to read 200 books? Uh, that's also another good question. I, I go back and forth with this all the time. For me, it would be to read 200 books, uh, a lot of them in the same category so that you can get alternate perspectives. As long as you're taking good notes, reviewing your notes, and spending time reflecting on the lessons that you're learning, not trying to hustle through the books just so that you can finish them. I reread books all the time. Uh, but I also read new books all the time. And people say to me sometimes, hey, how the heck can you read so many books? You're probably not retaining any of that information. You're probably not. You're probably just breezing through just to get them done. And it's not true. I think I just spend 50 times as much time or 50, time, 50 times as much time reading and reflecting and reviewing my notes as everybody else does. So mm -hmm. it's just a bigger portion of my day. But I think I'd pick 200 books. What about you? I would go with a hundred books twice because like you said, I, I find things the second time through that I didn't the first time that happens all the time. And a lot of it has to do with where you are in your life at that time that you just recognize something that you didn't last time. Mm -hmm. Do you think books should get remade for modern audiences the same way that movies are? Uh, that's also another great question. Let me just think about this one. My dad's favorite book was Catcher in the Rye. And so I must have been 17 when he rec recommended it to me. And I tried to read it and thought it was awful because I just couldn't relate to the times. And I thought it's supposed to be humorous and I, I didn't find it funny. <laughs> so I wish that something like that would be remade with our modern vernacular. 
Yeah, I think modern vernacular is a good way to look at it. I, there are a lot of older books. Like for me, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill was a great book, but it was very difficult for me to read mm-hmm. just because of the language. Mm-hmm. So an updated, simpler version of that uh, with modern vernacular would definitely be beneficial in my life. So I would say, yeah, I think that there are some books that could be remade like that. Do you think new writers should write covers the way that new musicians do covers <laughs> of their favorite music? Who <laughs> is kind of cover books on my Instagram. So I'll give book reviews and I'll talk about the lessons that I'm learning. I've always thought, just as you talked about in one of your episodes, whereas like Ryan Holiday will take passages from Seneca or Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus, and then he'll comment on them. And I think that that style of writing could be more popular than it is today where a modern author today could take a book like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and comment on it and add their own flavor and rewrite it like a cover. And there'd be a lot of value for people. So yes, I think that that is an untouched market that could be very popular. That is a great point. And once I write a book, I am considering going that route. It is much easier, especially if you have kids. I don't have kids yet, but if you have kids running around at starting at 6.30 a.m., you're only going to be able to write in short stints. And yeah. so if you can't find a cabin in the woods, it's, it's tough to, to get deep into your thoughts and, and write well. So I, I find it's easier to do it Ryan Holiday style. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? I would invest a good portion of it into real estate. I would... Probably continue for the most part on the path that I am. I love the full-time position that I have. I may negotiate a subcontractor position with them where I'm not an employee anymore. And I would be working from a, like a consultant point of view, maybe selling 20 hours a week instead of 50. And I would focus more time on developing and launching my side hustle book thinkers, the mobile application, continuing to enhance the community and probably upgrade you know, the tools that I'm using to get those things done. But for the most part, I'd stay on the path that I'm on. Very cool. If you were given the opportunity to shadow Xander Bogarts for three days, <laughs> <laughs> um, by shadow, I mean like meet him for breakfast, go with him to the gym, meetings, practice, whatever. Uh, would you pay uh, $5,000 to do that? Xander Bogarts. Probably not because I don't want to be a baseball player. I think Xander Bogarts is an interesting guy. Grew up in Aruba, came to the US. I just traveled to Aruba this year. So I got to learn a little bit about how much they love Boston culture and Xander Bogarts as a person. But just because he doesn't, he's cool. He's an athlete. He's somebody that I'd like to be like physically, maybe. And it's always nice to be in the presence of somebody who has made it in their field. But because I don't know that I could apply a lot of the lessons that he's used to become successful in his skill set, I probably would say no to that one. Okay, but there same, are a lot of people I would, I would pay for. Same question, Tom Brady, but you have to pay $25,000. You get to spend three days with him. Three days with Tom Brady, Yes. And I, the, the reason why I would pay $25,000 to spend three intensive days with Tom Brady is because he is the greatest all time at what he does. And there aren't a lot of people that can say that about what they do. Undisputed, you know, he is the guy. 
And if he's not first in your list, it's because you don't love the Patriots. But from a purely statistical perspective, he is the greatest all time in a very competitive and desired position. And I think there's a lot to learn about how he's so different from everybody else and the way that he trains and prepares and how ruthless he is at what he does. And I actually have met Tom Brady a couple of times because my neighbor was Mike Vrabel, who was a former Patriot linebacker. Yeah. And I got to go to some family practices and things like that. So um, I have met Tom, but I've never, at that time, I was too young to ask him anything. Oh, that's really cool, man. People forget how big of an underdog he was, right? Didn't he not play until Drew Bledsoe got hurt? And he was a, probably a six-rounder or something like that? Yeah, he was. So Tom Brady, you know, I, his first conversation ever with Bob Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, uh, they, they ran into each other in a hallway and um, Tom said, hey, Bob, you know, if you don't know who I am, I'm Tom Brady. And Bob said, or, or Bob said like, yeah, you're Tom Brady. And he's like, yeah, I'm the greatest pick you guys have ever made. I'm not going to let you down. So even though he wasn't starting and uh, he was the sixth round pick, he was still an iconic or, or had that winner's mindset that we all desire to have. And he just knew where he was going to be. All right. Two more questions for you. If you had one book that you could recommend for everyone to read, what would it be? Because of my experience, it would be Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm-hmm. It, it has done what it has done for me, for so many other people, which means that I'm not unique in this case. And a lot of other people can benefit from the lessons about financial literacy and the importance of personal development. I gift that book out all the time, and it's encouraged a lot of other people to continue reading which is not the sexiest of things to do in 2019. So uh, I would gift out Rich Dad, Poor Dad or recommend that to everybody. Very good. Before I ask my last question, do you have any questions for me? I noticed you've asked me a couple of questions and I thought, no, people don't usually ask me questions on the podcast. Yeah. So I'd love to ask a couple of questions. So I'll keep them short. You know, for you asking some of those same questions, what is the number one book that you would recommend to somebody who's just starting out and who's probably new to personal development and wants to learn more about the space? Well, it would depend on where they wanted to start. If it was basic financial principles, I'd start with The Richest Man in Babylon. The next step from there would be investing, and it would probably be Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or The Millionaire Next Door. I would listen to tapes or see, I mean, I'm so old that I listened to cassette tapes at one time. But I would find somebody who inspires me and I would regularly revisit that person because we all need motivation. We all need a swift kick in the ass. And a lot of us spend a lot of time in the car. We have a lot of windshield time. So during your commute, you can be leveling up and listening to, you know, if you're a a sales guy, you can be listening to someone like Zig Ziglar or Jim Rohn or somebody who gives presentations. It's almost like, it's almost like writers who will read their favorite author to channel that person, you know, have that voice in your head, and then you can somewhat mimic it. So, yeah, I, I would be a big fan of, of doing that too. But yeah, reading and um, listening. I mean, Audible makes that so much easier than it ever was. You can get an Audible member. Do you have an Audible membership? I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, it's what, fourteen ninety five a month and you get a free book. It's just crazy. But I noticed that the internet is making smart people smarter and probably making dumb people dumber. So it's the greatest tool in the history of the world. It's just a matter of how you use it. 
and somebody like you, you know, I'm buying stock in you, man, because you're going to utilize it to your benefit and other people are not and they're going to get dumber. So I think that's... Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's going to create more inequality, unfortunately, but um, that's the way of the world. And uh, you touched on a point that I just want to, I want to reference real quick. And we didn't talk about this today, but I, I do believe that it's so easy to be above average in today's environment because the bar is set so low and it's so easy to underperform and still get by because we have access to so many great things, especially in the United States. But there are a lot of tools out there that allow you to read book summaries and things like that. And I'm personally not a big fan of them because reading a summary of a book doesn't give you enough background or subtext for your subconscious to take hold of it and to act on what you've learned on your behalf. And studying a subject for 15 minutes or watching a three-minute video is the self-help junkie way to feel like you're being productive. And smart people realize that that's not efficient and they're not actually learning, whereas dumb people, uh, you know, they get bought into that and they think that, geez, you know, just listening to a three-minute recap of Rich Dad, Poor Dad just made me just as smart as the guy that read it. And it's not true. And people are complacent. They won't even read a book anymore to become more successful. So you hit on a great point there. And we could talk about that probably for a whole different podcast episode. But that's a big point that, that I'm trying to hammer home with people nowadays. Is like, you need to put in the time. And there's no shortcut to being successful. And a lot of people that buy into those little, hey, you can be a millionaire by tomorrow if you implement this kind of lessons, they don't get the bigger picture. And I want to help more people get the bigger picture. What book has had the biggest impact on your life to date? Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah, it's such a profound book. Yeah, it helped me to find meaning in the suffering that I experienced as a kid. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And you had talked about it before, but it's such a short book. And I think that somebody else on your podcast had recommended it as the book that they would go out there and read if you're trying to get into personal development. Mm-hmm. But such a such a profound book. I really encourage that one for people. Yeah. Dude, I've enjoyed this chat as much as any that I've had this year. And uh, you're a sharp cat and you're going to do big things in life, man. I am, I am convinced, like I said, I would buy stock in you. And I hope that you feel like you can contact me anytime. Where can people find out more about you? Well, I appreciate the compliment again, and I'm sure we'll stay in touch. People can find me on Instagram at bookthinkers, B-O-O-K-T-H-I-N-K-E-R-S, bookthinkers. And that is really the only place that you can contact me. Uh, Today, I will respond to 100% of the messages that people send, even though I get a bunch of them. But I think that it's valuable today to connect with the followers that I have. I can't ask for more people to reach out to me if I'm not paying attention to the ones that already do. So reach out to me at bookthinkers on Instagram. That's uh, probably the best place to find me. Awesome. Before we sign off, I, I want to make an important point here. You may have experienced this when you give talks. I experienced this when I give talks, and my friends have experienced this too. But they will tell people after they share a message that people value, they will, they will share their contact information, and they say, please, I'm, I'm here to help. Contact me. And so one of the things that I started saying is that if you're ever in a situation where you're in an audience and you appreciate that person's message, the message that gets, and I know this from my sales days, the message that gets replied to most has thank you in the subject title. You should, 
even if you're sitting in a room where Tom Brady gives a talk, if you can get a hold of Tom Brady's email and just put thank you in the subject title and just say, hey, I enjoyed your talk. Thank you for coming to visit us or whatever. Everybody in the room should do that. And I, I'm, I don't know why they don't do that more. Maybe they're intimidated. Maybe they're shy. But uh, Tim Ferriss, going back to the four-hour work week, that was one of the things that he encouraged people to do to overcome their fear of cold calling or cold emailing was to try to get famous people to reply to their email. <laughs> and I thought it was a great exercise. So anyway, that's my way, my long-winded way of saying, listeners, if you like what my man Nick had to say, reach out to him. Tell him thank you for sharing the message because this was a lot of valuable info and I really appreciate him sharing it. So thank you, Nick. I appreciate you being here. Well, thank you, Brad. And I appreciated being here as well. And if anybody has any questions for me, feel free to reach out. I promise I'll definitely respond. You're the man. All right. I'll take us out. Thank you for joining us today. I know that you could be listening to Mick Jagger or someone else's podcast, but you chose to be here with us and I really appreciate it. If you would like to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. Thank you.